Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Palm Peeps. Uh, as always, this is sort of the highlight of my week, getting to come together and talk with other pulmonary critical care providers about some really interesting topics. And thank you all for joining in. Uh, please make sure to check out our old episodes at our website, www.palmpeeps.com. Um, shout us out on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Monty, I'm so excited to be back. How are you doing? Hey, we're doing well. Um, I feel like the, the cold weather is starting to come a little bit, um, but it's probably still different for, for all of us on the call today, what's what's relatively cold versus not. Uh, but um, <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you. I love having this time to talk about interesting pulmonary and critical care topics. Yeah, totally. And we've had some really great conversations recently, some good roundtables and top consults, but it's been a while since we've done a fellow's case file. So I'm really excited to be back doing one today. Uh, for a reminder, if the, you haven't heard one before, or if it's been a while for you too, this is a series that the intention is to go around the country, go to different programs, amplify the voices of some outstanding fellows and hear about the cool cases that they've heard at their local institutions and create a network of just dedicated pulmonary and critical care educators. So we're excited to be back with one. Couldn't agree more, Farfa. These are definitely some of my favorite episodes and it's always so informative and fun to meet home peeps from all over. And this week, I think you and I are both excited to head to the Buckeye State, and we have a fantastic group to tell us about a case today. Yeah, I can't wait, for sure. Uh, just as a reminder, before we meet everybody, this podcast isn't meant for medical advice. Our views uh, don't necessarily express the views of our respective employers, and some details of the case may have been changed uh, to be HIPAA compliant and protect the identity of this patient. Uh, so that being said, let's go meet our guests. So first we have Dr. Kashi Goyle. Kashi is a second year pulmonary and critical care fellow at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Sorry, I should say the Ohio State University. I know that from <laughs> watching football games. Uh, she obtained her MD at OSU and then completed her IM residency actually here at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston, where I am now. Uh, very excited. Uh, she worked as a hospitalist and an educator for a year and then is back in fellowship now and, and remains very passionate about med ed. Uh, welcome to Palm Peeps, Kasha. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's nice to connect my BI roots to my new identity as a Buckeye. Yeah, I love it. That's great. Glad to have you on, Kashi. And next, um, honored to introduce Dr. Avi Cooper. Avi is an assistant professor of medicine um, at OSU and the program director of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship. And I'm noticing a theme here, but like Kashi, he's also a Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center um, internal medicine alumni. Um, in addition to that, he is an associate editor of the journal Graduate Medical Education. And last but not least, he co-hosts the Curious Clinician podcast, which is one of the most popular medical education podcasts out there. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Avi. It's such a pleasure to be on. I've sort of I've been listening and sort of um, fanboying since the beginning um, of Palm Peeps, and so it's really cool to <laughs> sort of um, to, to be a guest and to to um, hopefully uh, you know have a great conversation today. Yeah, we appreciate that. We're very much following and trying to fill your large footprint. So <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. Uh, finally, we have Dr. Lynn Fussner. Lynn is an associate professor of internal medicine at OSU and has been there since completing her fellowship and postdoctorate at the Mayo Clinic. In addition to her clinical work in the multidisciplinary vasculitis clinic, she has a translational researcher with a focus in inflammatory pulmonary disorders and vasculitis. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. Like Avi was saying, I'm a really big fan of this podcast and so excited to have the opportunity to be part of it today. Thanks so much. So we're going to go ahead and dive in. So Kashi, I know you have a great case for us. So why don't you start telling us about the patient? Sure. So I saw this patient 
as a referral in my clinic about a year into her presentation. Uh, she's a 57-year-old female who's presenting with wheezing and dyspnea on exertion. Uh, briefly, her symptoms began about one year prior with a COVID-19 infection, and since then had experienced a persistent cough, which was dry, non-productive, uh, with a significant post-nasal drip. She specifically had symptoms of exertional dyspnea and wheezing that seemed to be worse uh, with viral illnesses and periods of time when her allergies were worse. She came to the office with a diagnosis of asthma after being seen by an allergist previously, uh, and reassuringly on our, our initial visit, didn't have any uh, abnormalities in her vitals. Thanks so much, Kashi. And I think even with this little bit of information, this is a really great place to pause because um, as, you, as you mentioned, this is often what you have to start with and really parallels the patients that you're seeing in pulmonary clinic. So you mentioned she's reporting dyspnea on exertion with an associated wheeze and chronic cough. And I know in one of our prior episodes, FERF actually mentioned chronic cough and the things we usually think about. And in my mind, uh, those three things are um, most common etiologies could be cough variant asthma, upper airway cough syndrome, as well as GERD. But with her addition of wheezing, that does have me thinking about asthma for sure. And she's already reporting post-nasal drip, so two out of the three could be contributing. But Avi, I think a new layer to these presentations recently and patients similar to this is really kind of how, how do you think about the differential differently, specifically if they've been recently diagnosed with COVID-19? So how does this factor into your thinking with these types of patients? You know, when we see patients presenting with uh, post-COVID uh, dyspnea, wheezing, cough, you know, sometimes it can be uh, a new presentation of a reactive airways disease or um, a post-infectious cough sort of uh, after, you know, an initial infection, which honestly can be similar to lots of other viral infections as well, like RSV and influenza. We can certainly see um, new onsets of, of reactive airways disease, asthma, or a lingering cough, um, or an exacerbation of an existing um, diagnosis of asthma. And I think, you know, one of the sort of toughest conversations to have sometimes with patients, uh, which can be frustrating, frankly, for both patient and, and um, I think us as providers, is that a post-infectious cough can linger for many months and it can take a long time to resolve. And so I think sort of counseling patients on the, on the reality of how long it can take for some of these post-infectious symptoms to resolve is important. Oh, I totally agree. I feel like I have family members who get a post-infectious cough and then view me as like such a failure because I can't fix it for them. I'm like, no, this is normal. 12 weeks, it could be normal. So yeah, it's a tough combo to have. All right. Well, that's a great start for everything. Kashi, could you tell us a little bit more details about the patient? Yeah. She has a past medical history of hypertension, hypothyroidism, GERD, type 2 diabetes, and some surgical history as well. So some cataracts, an undescribed sinus surgery that was in 2006, and a revision in 2021, and a hysterectomy. She had a relatively long medication list, but some key findings were... Uh, albuterol and Symbicort, and she was on lisinopril as well as omeprazole. Her family history was notable for uh, a history of lupus with her mom and a diagnosis of a lung malignancy in her dad without a lot of other details. She is a never smoker and didn't have any significant occupational um, exposures or any other medication exposures that were of note in the past. That's great. 
I, you know, I think histories like this are very interesting in a pulmonary clinic because they sound relatively benign. Like there's nothing that pops out, but there are so many questions and things that you want to pick up on in that. A few things that hop out to me, you mentioned the sinus surgeries. We're not really sure. She's had two of them, which certainly raises a red flag to me. And I feel like a pulmonary and ENT clinic are often back and forth with these cough patients. Um, so, you know, could just be a bad sinusitis and you're having bad post-nasal drip and that's leading to a cough. But then I also get my antenna up about things that can cause manifestations in the lungs and the upper airway. So EGPA, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis could do this. Uh, aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease could do this and, and have like a nasal polyposis. So sometimes people just come in, they know they've had sinus surgeries and I'll definitely want to get more detail on that. You mentioned that you had uh, taken some reflux medicines, had a reflux history. That can certainly contribute to a cough, as we all know. Other medicines are always important to know about, like Sinopril, you know, being the most common offender. And then one thing I always want to linger on is patients often tell me they're on Simbacort or they have a Simbacort inhaler, but they're not really sure. And it's so important to know what dose and then how often they're supposed to use it. So if it's like one puff, you know, they're supposed to be using it twice a day, but is it two puffs twice a day? Are they on high intensity inhaled corticosteroids or are they actually on one puff and it's a lower uh, prescription and they're on a low to moderate intensity. And that really helps me pinpoint where in their asthma severity treatment they are. So I kind of like the detective work of, uh, of figuring this out. And I feel like after that detective work, the next step is always a, a good exam with these patients. So uh, what did you find on exam, Kashi? She was very well appearing in office and on my pulmonologist exam of her ears and nose, no acute abnormalities there, <laughs> no adenopathy that I appreciated. And on her pulmonary exam, she had both an inspiratory and an expiratory wheeze that was present pretty diffusely. No other ronchi or crackles, uh, and no increased work of breathing, no lower extremity edema, and no rashes that I appreciated. Thanks, Kashi. And uh, we, we have a wheeze. Um, so I think certainly most non-pulmonologists and even uh, most pulmonologists you know, equate wheeze to asthma. So this is helping us, um, I think, shape a picture for sure. But I love that you also told us some more about it, and it's both inspiratory and expiratory. And you know, I know when we generally look at, if we're looking at flow volume use um, in, in people with obstructive lung disease, such as asthma, you know, the inspiratory limb is normal, but it's really that expiratory limb where we get some impairment. So Lynn, I'm wondering if you could tell us how both the inspiratory and expiratory abnormalities that um, Kashi identified are playing into your thinking about the differential for this patient. Absolutely. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I feel like we can get a lot out of out of breath sounds and, and the physical exam in the in the pulmonary clinic. So, um, I think just like you were pointing out, when you when we're hearing a noise throughout the respiratory cycle, that that can raise a lot of questions. And there are a lot of things I want to tease out when when I'm hearing that. So, um, get a sense of how fixed the noise seems to be. Is it the same throughout the respiratory cycle, or is it kind of come in and out and and really variable? Does it seem to location wise be more upper versus lower airways? And then can the pitch kind of point me to larger central airways versus kind of lower peripheral airways? Um, I like to have a patient cough, clear their throat, and then have another deep breath and then listen again, um, ideally with, with an open mouth for the patient so I can kind of get a little more sense because I feel like often um, they might have some you know, mucus in their throat or, or that sort of thing that'll go away and, and things become a lot uh, more straightforward on the exam. Um, so that's a maneuver they, they can find helpful, um, that otherwise really just trying to, to pinpoint 
you know, location and pitch um, and make sure that I don't have something that's making me think of a more almost a fixed upper airway process or more of a strider that would take me a whole different direction, like a central airway obstruction. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lynn. And I think at this point, the five of us are starting to um, kind of redefine our differential, add some things or take some things away. And we've also, we've already mentioned a couple of things like asthma, upper airway cough syndrome, GERD, and even some rare things like Firth mentioned, um, aspirin, exacerbated respiratory disease. Um, so asthma is on the top of my differential, just based on the known history and exam with wheezing that you've mentioned, Kashi, but it's unusual that it's been a year seeing an allergist and presumably her PCP, and they just haven't been able to get really good control. So Kashi, I'm wondering what additional workup um, you got after seeing her for the first time. Yeah, so up until this point, she had had um, some workup, including an initial CBC that had an interesting differential to it. So her white count was 8.6, but she had 12% uh, eosinophils on her differential. So her absolute eosinophil account was greater than 1,000 and actually much higher on subsequent CBCs. She had a chest x-ray previously without any acute abnormalities. And she'd also had pulmonary function testing prior to our visit, um, which did not show obstruction, but did have a bronchodilator response when looking at her FBC. Um, the FEF 2575 was reduced, um, and interestingly, the TLC was actually above the predicted value. Oh, that's such useful information. You mentioned the eosinophils and how they caught your attention on the CDC, and I definitely want to delve into that a little bit. Sure, eosinophils have a very important role in the body, but as a pulmonologist, I just feel like that E stands for enemy. And I'm just, when I see that, I'm always nervous uh, and, and I get concerned and I feel like it could be driving the symptoms I see. So, you know, certainly we can see eosinophils in allergic phenotype asthma, uh, but there are a host of other things we, we should think about as well. So I'm wondering what you think about when you see EOs pop up like this, what's your approach to, to the workup? Yeah, I think similarly, don't have a particularly positive response to eosinophils, <laughs> and usually divide my differential into things that are primarily disease processes related to the lung versus having multi-system involvement. Specifically in the lungs, I try to categorize things that are primarily parenchymal disease, so whether that's eosinophilic pneumonias or Loeffler syndrome, or things that have a big airway component, so asthma or AVPA, versus thinking about multi-system disease EGPA or hyperesinophilic syndromes, drugs or parasites. Um, and then, you know, the other labs that I start to think about at this point are wanting to send IgE or strongyloides, uh, ANCA testing, um, certainly considering certain hematologic conditions, so maybe flow cytometry or B12, tryptase. And I feel like we shouldn't trash the eosinophils too much, right? Like. <laughs> Parasites, finding parasites is important yeah. evolutionarily. And, yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, my are going to turn on me now. I mean, he is for enemy. I like that. I really like, probably going <laughs> to, I'm going to borrow that if that's okay. But <laughs> I'm still glad we have it. <laughs> they always mean something interesting is going on, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> Uh, it, exactly right. And Kashi, I really like kind of the framework that you um, that you provided to kind of start thinking about the etiologies and how you broke it down into compartments. Um, but you, the PFTs were somewhat interesting to me. And Avi, I'm wondering, you know, what do you think is going on with that? It's not exactly what I was expecting. And how do the results play into how you think about the case? You know, I think a few things come to mind for me when, you know, hearing those PFTs. Um, the first is that 
Um, I'm really glad that there was a bronchodilator tested, even though there wasn't obstruction. And I think this can be a common pitfall when evaluating for asthma, um, is that if uh, sometimes, depending on um, your institution and, and just sort of the way that orders are templated, if you don't request a, um, a bronchodilator test, they won't be done unless there's obstruction. When you're thinking about diagnosing asthma and identifying, when you're identifying bronchodilator reversibility, you can meet criteria for that with enough of an increase in FEV1 or FEC, even if there is an obstruction present initially, because it still suggests that there is some bronchodilation happening. Uh, so I, I always try to request that specifically, please do bronchodilator regardless. And then also, you know, thinking about the FEF 25 to 75, you know, I think for me, sort of, I wonder about small airways disease when I see those sort of mid-flow obstructions. But, you know, we don't, hang our hat necessarily when we see that, but it is suggestive. But for me, I think what really sticks out, and especially in combination with the elevated total lung capacity, um, I think even though they may not have met the sort of traditional criteria for obstruction, um, I think that probably there is a component um, uh, of bronchodilator reversibility happening, which is, which is helpful. Thanks, Avi, for walking through that. And nothing better than, I'm sure nothing nothing better than the five of us wanting to nerd out, out about <laughs> some more PFTs. <laughs> but certainly as tempting as it is to say that this patient with wheezing and eosinophil in front of us has asthma, there's some slightly atypical features that could spur further workup. And um, I think it's important to note that we know that the patient would almost certainly feel better with prednisone at this point to help eliminate the eosinophilia and likely help with any airway disease that may be present. Um, but, you know, I think all of us want to know exactly what it is that we're treating before we prescribe steroids. So, Kashi, were there any other studies at this point that you did? Yeah, so about three months after her initial chest x-ray, she had a CTA of her chest uh, in a period of time when her symptoms had worsened. She did not have any... Um, filling defects in her pulmonary arteries, uh, no significant adenopathy, but she did have uh, new and bilateral ground glass opacities that were not present on her prior imaging. It's really interesting, you know, especially with asthma, when you see ground glass opacities, then my, the wheels start turning a little bit. You know, you know, one important thing, as Avi mentioned, is that she may have some obstruction, probably does, given the bronchodilator response and, and then maybe mid-airway, and then maybe some air trapping. So you always want to make sure that those ground glass are actually not just mosaicism and areas of air trapping that are, you know, pathologically squishing the other portions of the lungs and making it look like ground glass opacities. Um, so important, you know, differential to run through when you're seeing that. But if there are ground glass opacities in the lungs with patient with airway disease, Kashi, I'm going to go back to your framework of thinking about EOs and you mentioned the lungs and then thinking about airways and parenchyma. Now I'm worried that there's both involved. And so, you know, my thought process is changing a little bit. Uh, so Lena, you know, you've done a lot of work in sort of inflammatory lung diseases and things like this that, that may have uh, presentations like this. So I'm, I'm curious what your differential is at this point for a patient who has these type of findings and sort of what the next steps in your workup would be. Sure. So definitely an interesting combination here. And just like the PFTs, uh, don't we love to nerd out over, over high-res CT findings? Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite things. Um, so ground glass keeps the door wide open, right? So we, all we know is we have an alveolar filling process. So when we have a patient, oh, and I, I should point out an important thing that you've already said again, um, is asthma alone shouldn't explain this. Um, so that's really a big thing to, to keep in mind going into it. But when we have a patient like this who has a lot of symptoms, has been on steroids a lot, infection has to be on the differential, um, whether it's atypical or even or just regular typical pneumonia too, but, but an opportunistic infection would be on the table. 
but then trying to put it together with all the inf other information we have um, with, with the history and the EOs, and now these infiltrates, um, EGPA or another hyper-eosinophilic process definitely has to be on the table. Um, with my love of vasculitis, I'm wondering if there could be alveolar hemorrhage in there or if it's kind of just, in quotes, um, an inflammatory infiltrate. Hmm. Um, certainly blood typically would have more of a mixed density on imaging than just plain ground glass, but definitely something to, to keep in mind. Um, we always need to consider ABPA with this combination of things, but it doesn't seem like we're seeing a clear, you know, central bronchiectasis or mucus plugging type picture. So hopefully the CT helps us in that sense. Um, uh, none of her meds are jumping out to me, but always something we need to be, uh, as far as radiographic findings. So always something we need to be, um, keeping an eye on in, in pulmonary clinic. And then, um, one other thing. Um, it might not explain the EOs, but an immunodeficiency like a hypogamma um, would always be on my mind in a patient with kind of recurrent sinopulmonary issues and, and new infiltrates as well. As far as next steps, in addition to a bronch, a lot of the labs that, that Kashi has been referring to along the way, I think uh, could be helpful here. So I always want a new CBC with diff and kind of keep in mind when that is relative to the to the prednisone, um, I would add a UA here because of the, what the differential looks like. Um, some inflammatory markers, check for strong geloides, because that's something you don't want to miss here. And then I like to get immunoglobulins, including the IgG in addition to the IgE, maybe a RAST if we don't have that from the prior allergy workup, make sure we get an aspergillus one in there, uh, and then the ANCAs as well. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad you mentioned the Brock. You know, I, we, I was just having a conversation like this and I feel like my bias is towards action in these folks. Cause like, I really do like to know that answer before I just try to do antibiotics and steroids or something like that. And I, and I feel like a Bronx, you know, fits in well with that. So Kashi, we talked about a couple of things, Bronx and a bunch of labs, and you had mentioned some labs earlier. So do we have any things from that for this patient's workup? We do. We have both a bunch of labs and a bronchoscopy to talk about. <laughs> So at this point, she had had a, a repeat CBC and her ES, absolute eosinophilic count continued to, to rise. And it was actually um, at the time of that CT close to 7,000. She had a pretty extensive serologic workup. So her ANCA screen was negative. Her tryptase was within normal limits. She had an HP panel and a RAS and those were negative. She also had seen a hematologist and so had BCR ABLE testing and that was undetectable. Uh, and her strongyloides uh, was also negative. And then she had a bronchoscopy as well. And the BL consult there had predominantly lymphocytes at 56%, um, and then notably 3% eosinophils on that. It was sent for cytology and culture, both aerobic and fungal, uh, and those were ultimately negative. Thanks, Kashi. And I think a lot of helpful negatives that you mentioned, but not a whole lot of positives for us to go on at this time. But I think the BAL is particularly interesting, and it looks like it highlights that there can be, you know, compartmentalization in lung disease. And, and with that, I mean, the serum is, EOs are very high and, and even climbing, as you mentioned, uh, but the BAL EOs are only 3%. And Avi, how do you think about when EOs are identified on a BAL? I think it's, it's, it is striking the difference between the serum level of EOs in this case, which is extraordinarily high and not really finding them hardly at all in uh, on the bronchoscopy differential. Um, and I do wonder what the timing, because all of this was, I think, before she was referred to um, to our institution. Um, I do wonder about the the timing of, of receiving prednisone bursts and such, um, which uh, are, you know, I think could, could definitely confound um, 
the measurement of EOs on a on a bronchoscopic BAL. So I think that's that's sort of an important consideration when I find an unexpectedly low eosinophil count on a bronch when I expect it to be higher. Um, but when we do find pulmonary eosinophilia on a BAL, I think it's important to remember that it's pathognomonic for nothing. Um, it really doesn't tell you a specific thing that's going on, but it does um, sort of open up a uh, a, a differential, um, sort of um, like like Lynn had mentioned, you know, earlier when we found grand glass, you know, the sort of like, okay, now we've got that. Well, what do we make of of this specific new data point? So when I find pulmonary eosinophilia, um, you know, I think that my, my first thought is, could there be sort of a um, sort of a primary eosinophilic lung disease, um, such as EGPA or uh, acute uh, eosinophilic pneumonia or chronic eosinophilic pneumonia? Uh, or, or ABPA, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, those all can can certainly increase, uh, it can lead to pulmonary eosinophilia, uh, but also things like autoimmune interstitial lung disease, fungal or parasitic infections or drug reactions, um, all of them can, can cause pulmonary eosinophilia. So I think it really sort of... Um, uh, reinforces the need to, context, to, to contextualize um, what you find for your specific patient. I think we have a lot of great info so far. So just to summarize, because uh, we'll try to put it all together. We have a, a woman in her 50s. She has a past medical history of hypertension, hypothyroidism, type 2 diabetes, GERD, and sinus procedures. She's presenting with a year of dyspnea and cough and is found to have diffuse wheezing on exam, PFTs with no frank obstruction, but bronchodilator response and possible small airways disease, peripheral eosinophilia that's climbing, ground glass opacities on CT, and a relatively bland lymphocyte predominant BAL, but with negative cultures. We've mentioned a few things over and over and so they're definitely be high on our differential ABPA, EGPA, eosinophilic pneumonia, although we, you know, we have to take in our, our BAL findings in context of that. Uh, Kashi, did you have any other things you were thinking about at this point when you were first meeting this patient? Yeah, I think you summarized our differential pretty well. You know, when I chart reviewed on this patient, I thought, you know, this is just poorly controlled asthma. But but like you said, there are really pieces that don't fit with that. The ground glass opacities that, you know, subsequently resolve on imaging, her really high eosinophilia. So EGPA was pretty high on our differential when we accounted for her sinus findings as well. Um, and there was a point in her history when she had that very high eosinophilic count that we were worried that it was reasonable to think about a primary hematologic process uh, driving that eosinophilia. We also thought about an aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease um, in the context of potential polyposis and asthma, but ultimately didn't seem like there was a relation to NSAIDs. Yeah, I, I, I find AERD such a hard one, you know, especially with these people with sinus diseases, unless someone really gives me that history of like, oh, I took aspirin and said, you know, and it got worse. I feel like it's a really hard diagnosis to make. I've never challenged someone to see if it happens, but, you know, there's a first time for everything. Perf, I also think it's really hard to say um, <laughs> when you when you try to spell yeah. it out, too. <laughs> um, but Absolutely. Kashi, thanks for Kashi, thanks for going through um, kind of the other differentials that you were thinking about. So what did you end up ultimately doing for this patient as far as management for her? Yeah, so up until the point we had met her, she had had uh, recurrent steroid courses that varied from anywhere from a few days to multiple weeks. And it seems like consistently her symptoms got better with steroids. And then not surprisingly, as they, they tapered off, would get worse again. Ultimately, the patient discontinued her own steroid courses uh, because of a lot of side effects that she was experiencing. And so 
really for us, we, we wanted to not only rethink what her treatment plan would look like, but really what the diagnosis was. Uh, ultimately, when we put together her eosinophilia, her chronic rhinosinusitis, the parenchymal abnormalities that seemed to come and go in her steroid responsiveness, uh, it really led us to a diagnosis of eGPA, and that's how we moved forward with treatment. Thanks, Kashi. And I think this is a really fascinating case um, so far that you've described, because I think a lot of times people tend to get reassured by a negative ANCA when thinking about an eGPA diagnosis. And Lynn, I know you've done research on ANCA-associated vasculitis in the lungs, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the diagnostic criteria and workup for eGPA. Yes, it, it, it can be so tricky to pin down a diagnosis of eGPA um, for all the reasons that you're saying, especially with the ANCA test being less sensitive um, in eGPA versus other forms of ANCA-associated vasculitis, like GPA or MPA, just to stick with all our acronyms. <laughs> um, it, it's really positive only in about 40 to 60% of patients with eGPA, so a negative ANCA doesn't take it off the table. As pulmonologists... Um, we can encounter these patients really in, in a lot of different settings, right? Um, and a lot of different levels of acuity. Um, so we really have to maintain our clinical suspicion and remember that vasculitis is always on the differential. So first of all, for, for eGPA, like the other vasculitides, it's, it's a lot more straightforward to make a diagnosis if there is a clear small vessel manifestation, right? Like an alveolar hemorrhage, glomerulonephritis, mononeuritis multiplex. In those situations, um, the American College of Rheumatology classification criteria can be very useful. And I point out classification criteria versus diagnostic criteria, which can be a tricky concept because um, classification criteria are really intended to help pinpoint a more specific diagnosis when you have already a, a clear manifestation of a small vessel disease. Um, those are these are patients that we might see like in the ICU or in inpatient consults coming in with a, a new, very active, very severe presentation. For those patients, a history looking back of asthma, nasal polyposis, peripheral eosinophilia, tissue eosinophilia, all help to distinguish eGPA from other forms of small vessel vasculitis. However, as pulmonologists, especially in the outpatient setting, we're so often coming at the diagnosis from the opposite angle. So we're starting with the respiratory manifestations and trying to determine if something more systemic is going on. Um, so we, we see a ton of people with asthma and sinusitis, right? They often travel together, um, the, these two features, and some of them have eosinophilia. So when does it really cross that threshold into calling it eGPA? And I think that's where it could be really challenging if they don't have um, a positive ANCA or a clear small vessel feature. And many patients don't have either of those, especially if they've been partially treated, like this patient, where you know been on high-dose high steroids for a long time and still symptomatic. You're kind of you're seeing a, a partially treated picture and, and trying to put the pieces together. Um, I'll say there is some debate about whether patients without a small vessel feature should be labeled differently, um, but as it stands now, it's not formalized. And most clinical trials for eGPA, which is when we really want to be as strict as possible. Uh, for inclusion criteria have not required small vessel features. Um, so in practice, things like a prominent polyposis history or really profound eosinophilia um, might um, raise my suspicion and make me look harder for, for other features. Um, we're, and we're usually talking a much higher eosinophilia than we're used to seeing with eosinophilic asthma. So usually at least over a thousand for an absolute count um, and often much, much higher like we saw in this patient. Um, 
And when it comes down to it, I like to think of EG, EGPA as having a plus one. So we have our sinusitis or our um, asthma or eosinophilia, and then plus a little something extra or a lot something extra. <laughs> um, and that can be just a pulmonary infiltrate, um, something that shouldn't be accounted for by asthma alone. And, and if you don't have evidence of an infection, that can fit. Um, and then otherwise, certainly rash or other end organ manifestations. Um, as always, tissue can be helpful. So if you, if you have something that shows eosinophilic infiltration, really from anywhere, um, that can be helpful. So it might mean tracking down path from a prior sinus surgery if it's not as remote as, as some of what was going on here. And then the last comments would be distinguishing from hypereosinophilic syndrome. Um, I think like Kashi said, at least taking some of the hematologic processes and clonal um, eosinophil issues off the table is important, but I'm not sure there's a very clear demarcation between an EGPA and a, and a hypereosinophilic syndrome um, per se. Um, a lot of it's just more down to the organ manifestations, and EGPA is definitely a lot more sinopulmonary, typically. And then the other thing, like Avi was saying, we absolutely are seeing more of these patients after um, COVID-19 infection. So either de novo manifestations or um, really significant escalation of stuff that was was already going on. That's a great tour. I love it. And, and I really like how you mentioned the difference between classification and diagnosis and, and even honing in on the point of, you know, it really matters what population you're seeing, what criteria you're using, right? So our population has already been screened through a, you know, a fine netting and is likely to have sinopulmonary comorbidities. And so we're going to have a different rate of discovery of this disease than maybe somebody does in their general clinic. One something that always sort of crosses my mind also when I see patients like this, um, where we don't have evidence of small vessel disease is, you know, sort of where they are. If we're wondering about EGPA on the sort of sometimes the progression over time um, and that, you know, we are seeing someone as, a, you know, we are seeing as a window in time and that right now perhaps their phenotype is more eosinophilic and perhaps they, um, they, they might, they would have perhaps progressed to a more vasculitic phenotype you know, down the road without therapy or, or whatever. Um, and I don't know, Lynn, if that's how you sort of approach these patients as well, but. Hmm. Sure. Uh, um, absolutely. And, and there's, there's always a really broad spectrum of, of how folks can present. And I think uh, one thing we're seeing here is very, very often we are not on the outpatient side, at least we're not getting a completely fresh, untreated situation where, you know, it's a, it's a long history with many bursts of prednisone and, and a lot of detours along the way. Yeah, totally. I have one patient like this who I have on a anti uh, on monoclonal antibody who mm -hmm. uh, like was like, I used to have really bad diarrhea intermittently and now that's gone away. Do you think that's related? I was like, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's some spectrum of eosinophilic disease. But uh, um, yeah. So Kashi, sounds like we have a pretty good sense. You guys, you really thought about the case and had, you know, more of a, a sense of a global uh, diagnosis for this patient. So I'm curious about how you did go about treating her. You know, she had discontinuing the steroids, uh, what you just landed on for her therapy. Yeah, it felt like we finally had a better sense of the diagnosis. And it seemed like her symptoms really had improved with steroids, but uh, she had a lot of side effects and was trying to think about what our next steps would look like. In doing that, I thought about, does she have you know severe EGPA or non-severe EGPA? So trying to think about her case and um, the, which organs were involved and, and was there evidence of you know, life or organ threatening manifestations. And I think for her case, that, that wasn't present, luckily. So in thinking about non-severe EGPA, we did, I did restart steroids in this short term. 
but then started anti-IL-5 therapy. So started her on mepolizumab um, at the EGPA dosing. And she's had a profound response, both from a lab perspective and, and most importantly for her, for symptoms. At present, she's off oral glucocorticoids um, and is on maintenance mepolizumab uh, and feeling great. Wonderful, Kashi. And it's been a really fantastic case so far that we've been able to go through together. And uh, seems like she got the appropriate care that she needed. Um, you know, one thing that FERC and I love about Case Files is learning more about the programs, uh, your training programs, and getting to meet people from all over the country. And I'm wondering if we um, have some time to for each of you to tell us a little bit about what makes the PCCM program at OSU so special. And Kashi, I'll start with you. Sure. I'm sure everyone says this, but at our institution specifically, uh, it, the people really are special. It's the relationship between the fellows and the faculty and our patients. Um, and, and there is something really special about the Midwest, too, in terms of the collegiality. Uh, it's an honor being a Buckeye. That's awesome. Avi, uh, I know you're going to probably have some bias being the program director, and what, uh, but uh, Anything that you want to share? I was going to say people too, but Kashi got there first um, <laughs> and institutional culture. Um, but I guess, you know, as putting my program director hat on, I think what we really um, pride ourselves on is um, the individualized training that we can offer to fellows and how much we just care about each fellow and try to maximize their their growth and development as clinicians, as people, as professionals, and to help them, you know, meet their goals, whatever those are, and being able to partner with um, uh uh, amazing faculty uh, like Lynn um, as clinical leaders uh, certainly makes my job easier. Um, and having amazing fellows uh, like Kashi also makes my job easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel very, uh, very blessed to be where I am. That's amazing. And, and Lynn, anything that you have to share? So, so definitely the people. Um, so in addition to in, engaged fellows like Kashi and, and fantastic program leadership like, like Avi, um, I guess I would just highlight the um, Columbus itself is a is a great city um, in its own right, um, much bigger than a you know typical Midwestern college town, um, and with that um, brings a, a really large medical center. Um, we have we have a big footprint. We have a huge ICU, um, a lot of outpatient practice, and and that, and so the fellows really get to see a huge variety of of clinical pathology, um, both the the more straightforward you know quote unquote bread and butter stuff, and then the um, more uncommon things like, like the case we were talking about today. So really a wide breadth of, of exposure um, coming from populations with both urban and rural uh, background. Yeah, that's great. Well, we always, we really appreciate you all coming on the show. It's been a great uh, hour. We always like to wrap up with a, a learning or takeaway point, in addition to the fact that OSU is a great place to practice and train. <laughs> um, so mine is, you know, I'm going to take one from early on and sort of a, a, a simpler one, but I really liked it. Lynn, you talked about your pulmonary exam for patients who wheeze and the benefit of having someone uh, listening to them before and after they cough. Uh, and I think that is a really nuanced point. You, know, you can really learn a lot if someone is able to clear that airway about where that uh, um, airway obstruction you're hearing may be coming from. Monty, what about you? Um, I think that uh, there's more, I learned that there's definitely more um, to, than football at OSU. Uh, <laughs> and so so many things to make the, the training there um, special. And I think I wanted to take Avi's point when he was um, talking about PFTs that you know, even though that they may not have um, show obstruction on, on a pre-bronchodilator um, 
testing that you should still kind of ask for post bronchodilator um, response as well. So that's my learning point um, that I took away from today. Great. Avi, something that learners should take away? I really appreciated Kashi's framework for um, for eosinophilic lung disease and thinking about um, sort of compartmentalizing it by airway, parenchyma, and systemic. I think that's a really helpful way to organize one's thinking. Yeah, definitely. I like that too. Kashi? Well, I learned a lot from this case and, mm-hmm. and from this conversation, but I think the takeaway for me is dividing eGPA in severe and non-severe disease and using that to help guide what my steroid sparing agent could look like. And so for non-severe, thinking about anti-IL-5 therapy. That's great. And Lynn, last but not least. Uh, I'll take take your uh, comment about the, the CT and really paying close attention to distinguish mosaicism versus ground glass. Um, really you know, making sure you're getting a good look at a nice inhalation on the CT versus a lot of times we'll see ground glass at the bottom of a abdominal CT that may or may not have been intended for for that. So so really kind of trying to to tease out what we really are seeing on the, the CT and um, the broad differential that comes with ground glass. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you all again for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Uh, this uh, episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music is original music by Eric Rogers. Uh, we'll see you next time.